0: So if you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8, Hebrews chapter 8, and I will read verses 1 through 6, Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So I've titled this sermon, The New, Coven- uh, the new Covenant sorry, and the Burning Question. And I, I mean that to elicit some kind of response in you, because as we look at all of these things regarding the new covenant that we're in, what God has done for us in the new covenant, and the uniqueness and superiority of our great high priest, I want you to ask an important question. It should be screaming at you from the pages. What is the question? What is this burning question I want you to ask and to feel? How do I get into this new covenant? How do I get in? And I'll just tell you up front, this is setting things up for our series on the gospel, which will begin next week. We'll take an extended look at Romans chapter one, especially verses 16 and 17, where we discuss the gospel and all of its glory or as much as we can in the weeks that we dedicate to it. The gospel, this is going to be the conclusion of the message, so this is really important. The gospel is how we get into the new covenant. And that's what I want you to understand. I want you to feel the significance of that as we remind ourselves and even look back a little bit at the glory of this new covenant, the promises, the better promises of this new covenant, and the superiority of our great high priest, Jesus, versus the old priests, I want you to want in. I want you to feel the significance of not being in if you're not in, and I want you to desire to enter into this new covenant with God. So we begin with verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. And don't you love it when the Bible tells you what the point is, what it's been saying? It's always there on the page, even when it doesn't say something like this. But sometimes we need help. And at this point, because he's saying this, now the point in what we are saying or what we have been saying, we need to pull up in our minds, we need to remember all the truth And glory of the new covenant and our great high priest. We need to remember all that truth and all that glory. What I want you to do is to try to remember everything we've looked at. To this point about Jesus being our great high priest compared to Melchizedek. And about the new covenant versus the old. And Thankfully, you can listen to all those sermons online. There's quite a bit over that topic but even if we had just last week finished discussing all of that I don't I'm not so naive to think that I'm such a good communicator that you remember all of it okay I don't even so let's just read through all of Hebrews again I'm just kidding (laughs) Uh, chapters 1 through 7 would only take 18 minutes I timed it because I almost did it Um, but we're just going to go back to um, verse uh, 11 of chapter 7. The high priest, Jesus being our high priest, is introduced all the way back in chapter 1. In chapter, or chapter 2, rather. And chapter 1 sets up our expectation of Christ being our new high priest. But with chapter 7, verse 11, he really begins to hone in on the significance of this Doctrine. So we'll be happy with three minutes as opposed to 18 minutes and begin with Hebrews 7 verse 11 as we remind ourselves So just let these ideas wash over you and try to bring up in your mind all that we've discussed regarding these glorious truths. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord, Jesus, was descended from Judah, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is written of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later, and the law appoints a son who, is made, who has been made perfect forever. So the point in, which, in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. That's the point. Christian, you really need to get this. You have such a great high priest as has been just described in the words that I've read. He's there. He is your high priest. This isn't just theoretical theology. This isn't just mystical story writing. He is your high priest, and you have such a high priest. Your response might be, well, so what? I don't really feel the need for a priest. I've never had one in physical form? Why do I need such a great high priest? Why does it matter that we have such a great high priest? What I've been trying to do so hard in these sermons that we've been talking about, the Jesus being our high priest through Hebrews, is to show you how big of a deal this is. I'll just use a few examples. Can any of you recall the first time you ever heard the story of of Abraham offering Isaac on the altar. For many of you, you may have not remembered because you were so young when you heard it. But the, the, the phrase that comes out of that story that we celebrate and that we treasure and that we, that we love to hear, even if we've heard the story a hundred times, is God will provide. And your most fundamental needs... At the moment of crisis, where faith and obedience seem to be at a crossroads, God will provide. And so that phrase, that single phrase, one of the names of God that you let into your soul and how significant that is, especially when things get dark and hard, the reality, the truth of God will provide. That changes things at a seismic level in your heart, if you really believe that, if you've embraced that, God will provide. And I would argue that the truth of Jesus being your great high priest who ministers now in the heavenly places is just as, if not more, significant for your heart. And here's the thing about him being the high priest. We've mentioned this before. It's different than the majority of the other titles that we give Jesus. One that we just sang that I love, that I reference all the time, is that he's the Lion of Judah. It's so beautiful and such a wonderful idea of Christ. But he's not, we've mentioned this before, he's not literally a lion, right? He didn't, the incarnation was him becoming a man, not a lion, Right? But we understand what it means that he's a lion. You know, there's, there's none in comparison to his strength and his might and the, the symbolism of the lion and Judah and the king and all that. And we celebrate that. Him being the high priest isn't an analogy or an imagery, that's what he really is right now. And his most significant relationship or, or interrelationship with you is his role as your great high priest. So all of those blessings, all of those benefits, all of the statements of this being better, this covenant being better, his ministry as high priest being better. If you are in Christ, behold, you are great high priest. All of these blessings flow to you through him. And then he says, this is... the end of verse 1 one seated one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and this staggers the imagination and this this image of seeing Jesus sitting at the right hand is is the vision even given to Stephen he wasn't seated he stood up as as if to witness and approve of Stephen's Message, But seeing Him at the right hand of power, that's that's even the vision that that is given to John when all of the nations are gathered together and we see Jesus ruling, sitting at the right hand of God. and, And 10 million things could be said about this. The significance, the glory of understanding Jesus being seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Thinking about it, Its glory, its weight can bring tears to your eyes. That's what we'll sing about and rejoice in forever. That we behold the lamb seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. The one who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high can be yours. Ten million things could be said about this. I'm going to pick just one about it this morning. And what I think the author is trying to get you to feel as he's relaying to you the significance of this. This one. This is the one your heart needs. This one who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high can be yours. You may feel the brokenness of a relationship, the loss of a friend or a loved one, the loss of a child, or a romance that was lost. You may just have a dark cloud of loss over your life. Broken dreams, false starts, bad decisions, waste, loss, and just foolishness. I can look back on my life and just begin to count up the dollars that have just been wasted of things that I thought I had to pay for but didn't, tickets that I got that were stupid, and all of this loss that you can think of, whether from a financial or relational perspective, friendships that were lost, and you, you can just see this dark cloud, not to depress you, but if you look back and you pay attention close enough, it's just loss. But what if... All of that can be given meaning and purpose so that it's not any more loss but gain. You can have this one. The one who sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, he can be yours and any life, regardless of how much temporal loss there is, physical loss there is or loss of health that there is or loss of loved ones. There is a life that ultimately ends in you gaining Christ is gain. He has offered himself to you, not just his blessings himself. He can be yours. As Paul says in Ephesians, and he God gave him Jesus as head of all things to the church. That is the great blessing of our message of Christianity, that Jesus is being given to you. And Paul says, I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I might gain Christ. This one who is seated in glory and victory in the place of power at the right hand of the Majesty on high. It staggers the imagination. And He can be yours this day. All of the trials and losses and sadness in this life is helping prepare you for the day when you are are able to have Him fully. For these light momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Then he says, He's a minister in the holy places. We've talked about this before. But this should be of such great encouragement to you. Jesus is ministering in the heavenly places for you. Here's uh, an analogy. I I love and hate at the same time coordinating events, right? It stresses me out, but at the same time, I love organization and things being beautiful in the end. So if it doesn't work out and if it's not organized and beautiful in the end, it it really frustrates me. So I get stressed whenever there's an event that I'm involved with and I got to do any kind of coordination. So let me just set the stage for you. Um, This is not something that actually happened, but just imagine if you, regardless of what age you are, you were given the responsibility of coordinating your best friend's wedding, okay? And it's gonna be a big to-do, there's gonna be over 500 people there, massive facility, there's caterers, there's flowers that gotta be taken care of, there's invitations, there's cake, there's all the stuff that goes into the wedding, and you're in charge of all of it, and you've never done it before, and you've been given this responsibility to make sure you knock it out of the park. Lots of money is being put into this, like 50 grand or more, and you're in charge and you've got to make it perfect for your best friend. And then if that's not enough, you get sick the week of. And for whatever reason, maybe pressures at work or school or whatever, you haven't had the time to really do much prep of any kind. And it's the week of, and then you get the flu, and then you pass out. And the day of, you wake up in the hospital and you've got several hundred text messages missed, phone calls missed, voicemails, and you panic because you're not where you should be. This massively important event for your best friend is about to happen, and you've done nothing. And you're completely incapacitated of doing anything about it. But then another friend of yours walks in, maybe an older, wiser friend, and says, don't worry about it. I've taken care of everything. The most important things about your future and your destiny are in places you have never been. Jesus ministers for you in the heavenly places. He's interceding for you with the Father right now, 24-7, praying for you, doing that which you cannot do for yourself. If you're one of His, that's what He's doing for you. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So this is not the tabernacle or the temple or any future temple. This is the heavenly, eternal temple. And Here's the significance of this. Every earthly religion is man working to try and bring God's blessing down. So we'll gather together, we'll make these nice temples, we'll make images of the the deity that we're trying to please, we'll offer sacrifices, and maybe then he'll respond and give us a good crop, or he'll give us fertility and all of these things. So we'll try to bring the blessings of heaven down to us in this temple that we have imagined for ourselves. But the one true God commanded a temple to be built, a tabernacle to be built, and it was his idea. It was according to his plans. He gave the dimensions, the building materials. And at the center of this temple, this tent that he commanded, is not us trying to bring the blessings of heaven down, but what? What is in the Holy of Holies? The mercy seat. Same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament for the propitiation. Propitiation. Where God designs it. It's God's idea. The Christian religion is God's idea. Centered around this idea of I have condescended. I have come to you after this eternal temple that has been set up in heaven forever. It's been my idea from the beginning. We didn't put this together. This is his idea. It's all a copy. The temple, the tabernacle, all of it. A copy and a shadow of what God set up. From eternity in heaven. And since it's God's idea, it rests on grace. It's not us working to try and bring his blessing down. It's that he has already made provision and a way for his grace to come to us. And that's the point of Ephesians 1. That the banner, the headline story, the, the thing that you put in 72 size uh, print at the top is God's Grace. Because it's his idea. It's his initiative. We don't work to bring it down. He gives it freely. And it's undeserved. Verse 3 through 5. For every high priest is anointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since... There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. We'll investigate this later after our series on the gospel. There's a lot there that we can't get to today. And it's mainly a parenthetical in the way that the... uh, The sermon flows here. Hebrews is most likely a sermon. It's kind of a parenthetical to illustrate a point. So we need to have a few takeaways, though. From this. First is both the tabernacle and the temple were merely shadows, copies of the true reality in heaven. And you need to understand this. Don't go back to the shadows and the copies. There is a danger of the new Judaism and an overly literal eschatology. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. This is for those who understand what I'm saying. That type of view of the end of the world draws us off sides and entrances us on things other than Christ. But the altar is closed, friends. There are no more sacrifices. He has sacrificed himself once for all. We don't need the copies to be rebuilt. And that's not what the revelation to John means. That's not what we should hope in. We have in Christ today all that those shadows and copies were pointing to. Jesus is right now serving and ruling as your great high priest in the true eternal temple of heaven. So I we'll have to come back to that after the series on the gospel. Verse six. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent. You can just if you're a person who underlines or highlights in your Bible, just circle, underline, highlight. That one, much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. It's not only that all the promises of the previous covenants are rolled into one, we'll talk a little bit about that later, but the promises are altogether better. He says, much more excellent. All of these promises so here's the question. How are the promises of this new covenant so much better? What are the promises of the new covenant? And he doesn't go into a long list. And you could probably think of many of the promises of the new covenant right now if you know your Bibles well. And you could start listing them. Well, here's all the ways that it's better. But just to remind you of some of the things we've looked at in the Reve- in, uh, Hebrews, rather, There's two ideas of rest and kingdom. That what God is doing in the new covenant is finishing out what was begun or previewed in the old. The Israelites were commanded to keep Sabbath for rest. It was a day sacred to God and what jesus comes and you see this this conflict between the religious leaders and jesus about how do we deal with the sabbath the reason that's the case is because the new covenant finishes out brings to completion what was previewed in the celebration of the sabbath the final rest for the people of god and also a kingdom that what god is doing isn't necessarily establishing literal Israel as a kingdom and all of us trying to find our way in, but he has established a kingdom that is from old, well before the foundation of the nation of Israel and that continues on into all eternity. And it's summarized, if you want to turn there, Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 18. And feel the contrast between the promises of the old covenant and the promises of the new for you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Where is this? This is Mount Sinai. This is when God came down and gave the content and the commands of the Old Covenant. So the author says, you've not come to that, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festial gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It's better in every way. Just a few other ways that this new promise, this new covenant is so much better. We'll see this as we look at the content of it. Every other covenant that you can find in the, in the Bible has this uh, structure. If then. Okay? Here, are, here are my obligations to you and if you obey these obligations to me, then I will bless you in this way. But if you don't obey these commands, then I will do this. If then, if then. The new covenant, we'll see this as he quotes from Jeremiah 31, is I will. Just simply, I will. And also, the new covenant is better is because it encapsulates or involves all creation instead of just national Israel. And it's better in another way. We have an undying king versus the line of Judah. Dying kings. And there is no question of it being undone. So we will always be with the Lord. That He will so change us that the possibility of sin and falling out of this covenant with Him will be completely, utterly removed. Safe and secure for all along. Imagine. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and then we'll get to the quotation here in a little bit. we get got to answer this question. Finds fault? I have to talk about this a lot Uh, after the series on the gospel, but there's a few main points that the author is trying to get across. He's trying to discourage apostasy. Okay, We've seen that in chapter 6. We're going to see it again in chapter 10. His hearers were asking, why can't we just go back to the old way, the old covenant? Things were a lot easier back then because then only Rome was mad at us, not Rome and the Jews. Why can't we just go back the old way? And so he says that God himself finds fault with the old covenant. He's also discouraging a very subtle form of apostasy that's still at work today. The temptation of being religious, but not being regenerate. The temptation to keep some commandments, but not submitting to Christ the King. The temptation of trying to be a good person, but not pursuing God. The temptation of going to church, but not giving your life to the Christian family. The temptation of saying the right words, but being so far from walking in repentance. Because you can have the outward appearance of the people of God. But inwardly, you're so far from Him. And we will put up with more rules. We love rules. As Paul says to the Corinthians, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, Or if you receive a different spirit from the ones you receive or you accept, if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it regularly enough. That's his rebuke of him like we we, we so want that limited way. It's just rules and behaviors and outward appearances. We're not interested many times in the change at the heart level. And the problem, the fault with the Old Covenant isn't with the Old Covenant itself. The problem or the fault with the Old Covenant is with our nature. Two parts of our nature. The first is pride. Contrary to what you might think, what we might feel, our nature on its own, we don't like the idea of grace. You can see that in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We don't want grace because we want to earn it. We want it to be deserved. And we especially don't want the grace of a sovereign God. Pride will not let us admit that we cannot bring anything other than our sins to the table. Pride will not let us admit that even our best works, even our good works in an attempt to earn God's favor are unclean and disgusting, filthy rags. And that's putting it mildly. So be careful. Beware. Pay attention to where your heart is right now. In hearing me tell you that our best efforts apart from grace, the very best that the nature of man can bring is disgusting and reprehensible to God. Pay attention to what your heart is feeling. Because it might be pride. And you might be distancing yourself from God's grace. Because that's what grace says. You can't and all that you have isn't acceptable. The second part of our nature that causes the old covenant to be filled with fault. The second piece is our unbelief. We struggle to believe that God could be so gracious. And we struggle to believe that he is right and just in offering the forgiveness that he does. And that is seen or reflected or mirrored in our inability to forgive others. Sometimes we don't forgive uh, others. Sometimes it's that we think we're beyond forgiveness. Sometimes it's both of those together, but it's all rooted in the belief that God, God couldn't be this good. I believe it's in Isaiah might be Ezekiel. God says, "If a wicked person turns from their wickedness, repents, and does righteousness, I will forgive them." And you say the way of God is unjust. When we look at that, when our heart looks at that and sees God's forgiveness, especially in in. Very outstanding cases in the Old Testament are people that we know. We almost don't want God to be able to forgive them. We're like Jonah on the precipice looking onto Nineveh. Don't forgive them. It's too bad. They're beyond forgiveness, beyond the pale. Not realizing that that is us. We need just as much forgiveness as Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you don't believe that, you don't get the gospel. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each to his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The foundations of the new covenant are in the old. Prophesied in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and even going all the way back to Genesis 315. But also the foundation of the new covenant is in our disobedience. Notice that the need for the new covenant is because God isn't done. He's not satisfied with just leaving it with us breaking his first covenant. He's not satisfied to stay in the position that he says, I showed no concern for them. That's the promise that he made in Deuteronomy. If you abandon this covenant, I will abandon you. And God is not satisfied to leave us there, even though that's what we deserved. And the new covenant is so unique. In every other covenant you find, you have obligations on both sides. You do this, I'll do this. And the if-then dynamic we discussed. So here's what God does in the new covenant. He puts his laws on our minds. He writes his law on our hearts. He is our God. He will be merciful towards our iniquities. And he will remember our sins no more. So what do we do in the New Covenant? Where do we detect what we do? We could say, well, it says that we're not supposed to teach each other. But that's more of an illustration of the degree to which we will know the Lord. No, that's not effort we bring to the table. That's just saying everyone who is in this New Covenant, unlike the Old Covenant, everyone who is in this will know the Lord from the heart. Notice the ground or the, the foundational piece where he says for at the very end in verse 12. The heart of the new covenant is mercy towards sinners and forgiveness of sins. The heart of the new covenant is mercy towards sinners and forgiveness of sins. The other covenants, all of them, were doomed to fail because they depended in part on the faithfulness of people. There, were, there was nothing wrong with them inherently. It's not like they were sinful. But they didn't deal with the main problem of pride and unbelief. Verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Just as an aside, and this is very important, there are not two peoples of God. There are not two peoples of God. It has always been the true offspring of Abraham who share his faith. It's very important. You can see that in Romans four and everything that we've seen so far regarding the new covenant. There are not two peoples of God. It's always been the true offspring of Abraham who share faith. Abraham's faith. It's not Israel and the church or Israel then the church. It's always my people who share the faith of Father Abraham. The church does not replace Israel. The true Israel is the group of all those who follow the son of David as king. All those who are under the new covenant. So what does this mean for me? What does this all mean? All this high and lofty truth about Jesus, our high priest, where he ministers, this, the nature of this new covenant, all of these stunning things. Hopefully you've appreciated some of the gravity of these things. What does this mean for me? All of the blessings of God. All the ultimate fulfillment of every promise God ever made to anyone. All of it is in the person of Jesus Christ. All the blessings guaranteed to Abraham and his offspring. All the promises guaranteed to David and the people of his nation. All of the promises made to the people of Israel. Pay attention to this. They are not just given to us now directly. They are given fully and totally and eternally to Jesus. He is the true offspring of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the true Israel. It's all concentrated in him. So if it's all given to him and it's all in him, then how does, what does it have to do with me? Let's ask it again. What does this have to do with me? And now you begin to see why it is such a big deal that Jesus is your new great high priest. Because he takes all of the blessings that have been given to him through his faithfulness. He's the son of David. He's the true offspring of Abraham. He's the true Israel and receives all the blessings in himself. And then he gives them to his people, those that he ministers to as their high priest. Second Corinthians 1 20 for the promises for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All of the promises of God find their amen, their yes in Christ, Christ alone. And he gives these blessings to those who are in this new covenant The new covenant is essentially guaranteeing all of these blessings from everything else and pouring those into the people who are in Christ. So the other side of the coin is important as well. Meaning that none of the blessings of God, none of the promises guaranteed to anyone at any point in all of human history, if you're outside of Christ, you get none of it. all of it will always only be in Him. This is why Jesus is exclusive. There is no other way, no other name, no under other possible circumstance wherein you can receive any one of the lasting and best blessings of God. This means if you're outside Christ, all of the promises of God are no for you forever. So we end end with this question. Again, how does this apply to me? What does this have to do with me? What I've wanted to happen this entire time in, in explaining the glory of this new covenant, the glory of this great high priest is, as I said at the beginning, generating in you, causing in your heart a desire to be in this new covenant and to have Jesus as your great high priest so that you might receive all the blessings of God. So that the statement, he has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that that might be yours. To make I, w- I want you to desire all of that to apply to you. To be true of you, I want to, I wanted to make you want it deeply. And to make you wonder how it can all be yours. As, as as we've already said, it's all in Christ that you receive any of this. You gain Christ, you enter this new covenant through the power of God at work in the Gospel. You gain Christ. You enter this new covenant through the power of God at work in the Gospel. And I need your undivided attention. All of these blessings belong to Him. All of this is His and He gives to His sheep. So how do I get in? How do I become one of his sheep? How do I gain Christ? Do you gain Christ by trying to be a good person? Do you gain Christ by going to church? Do you gain Christ by memorizing scripture? Do you gain Christ by serving other people? Do you gain Christ by doing good in the world? Do you gain Christ by being a good citizen Do you gain Christ by being generally spiritual? Do you gain Christ by wanting to live your life to please him even? Do you gain Christ by believing that Jesus was real? Do you gain Christ by knowing the facts about Jesus? Do you gain Christ even by believing that he is the son of God? All of those are good. All of those are necessary, but none of them are better than what the Pharisees or the devil himself does. You believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's the gospel. It is through the gospel and only the gospel that you gain Christ. The gospel is different than just the facts about Jesus. The gospel does something. It accomplishes something that none of those things can do. If you would go to Romans one verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'll just lay my cards on the table right now. The gospel is that those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus's death for the forgiveness of your sins, satisfying God's wrath against you and in his resurrection in life for your right standing with God, God himself gives you the righteousness of Christ. Only in the gospel is your greatest need, your greatest lack, met. Your greatest problem, your greatest need isn't more knowledge. It's not more education. It's not more self-esteem. It's not more health. It's not more wealth. It's not more theological truth, even. It's not more understanding of mysteries. It's not more friends. It's not more fellowship. You and I lack righteousness. And it's only in the gospel, in Jesus giving you his righteousness through the repentance and trust in him that you gain righteousness. Only by repenting and believing in the gospel will anyone ever be made righteous. So today. Will you repent? And trust? in Christ's work and gain his righteousness. As David says, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light. And your justice as the noonday. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for the gospel that brings us into this new covenant that makes us the people for whom Jesus ministers on our behalf forever as our great high priest. Help us glory in the gospel. Give us the heart of the tax collector. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Let us lay down our pride and unbelief and trust that Your work in Jesus on the cross paid the penalty for our sins, satisfying Your holy, just wrath so that we could stand right before You. May today be the salvation, the day of salvation for someone in this room, whether praying where they sit now or finding me or one of the other leaders in this building to repent and believe on Jesus. I pray these things in His name for His sake. Amen.